Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday Morning Digital Cathedral coming to you out of Houston, Texas. And we are into summertime in Texas. Today is June the 14th and uh, it's warm, very warm. And we probably will be till sometime, usually about second week of October. All right, this morning, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter six. We're up to the sixth chapter of Ephesians. We're gonna finish the book of Ephesians off this morning, which will put us halfway through our goal of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So we'll pick up Philippians chapter one next week. Just before we get into the study, I have one quick announcement that I wanna make. I'll make it again Wednesday, but for the month of June, I will not be doing the Wednesday night live. And the reason is uh, we have sold our house that we've lived in for 20 years here in Houston. And uh, we're in a period of our life that we don't have to be real close to the town. So I, would, I wanted to move out in the country a little bit. So we're moving about 20 miles west. We live way on the west side of Houston as it is, but it's still, you know, the city with the freeways. So I've wanted to move out a ways. So we've been looking for about a year for a house. I'll talk to you a little bit more about it Wednesday night because it's really kind of a miracle that we found this house and got it, and I think it's a God thing. So I'll share a little bit more about it Wednesday night. But I just wanted to announce that I will. I'm, it might not take me the full month to get settled, but uh, we're we're be moved by we're moved uh, by the time you see this, and I'm not sure internet connections and you know all the all the stuff that's involved when you've lived in a house 20 years, believe me, we have got a lot of stuff that we've accumulated. And, uh, and so beginning after, uh, for the month of June, we will not be doing the Wednesday night live. So if you wonder where I've been the last Wednesday night or two, it's that I'm taking it off. And I've, I will have announced a little bit ahead of time previously, but I just wanted to let you know in case, because I have had people messaging me, wanting to make sure I was okay. I wasn't, you know, sick or had a problem, but no, no problem. We have just moved and we're getting all situated and squared away. So it might not take the whole month, but I gave myself that much time on Wednesdays. Sundays, I'll be here every Sunday morning. No problem. Amen. All right. Let's pick up on the sixth chapter of, of Ephesians. And as we come into this last chapter of the book of Ephesians, let me remind you of something. If you take chapters four, five, and six, which deals with living out the revelations that Paul gave us in chapters one, two, and three. But if you just take chapter four, five, and six, and don't use the building blocks of chapter one, two, and three uh, as the guiding paradigm, I'm telling you what's gonna happen. It's gonna turn you into uh, working for achievement and works. It's gonna turn you into a religious fanatic. The foundation of of chapters four, five, and six is revelation, or um, the revelations that he gives to us in one, two, and three. And we looked at a good example of that last week of the husband-wife relationship. If you don't understand what he's telling you in chapters one, two, and three, by the time you get to five, and many have done this in religion, they've tried to make uh, what he's talking about, which we explained last week was the relationship, the mystery between Christ and the church, and he was using it as, as kind of a parable or a metaphor, which sometimes you overdo to get your point across. Uh, you can become very religious at trying to tell wives they have to submit and husband's not loving your wife enough because you don't love her like Christ loved the church. So you're lacking, the wife is lacking. 
and it makes for a real religious mess. So you wanna make sure that you have chapters one, two, and three, and you probably should go back and just meditate those chapters every now and then, read them over, especially when you are feel like you're being cornered in by religion or you maybe you're maybe you're out of the church maybe you've left the church you're not under that burden anymore but you just conjure up things in your own mind that that you're not matching up to what you should be come back to chapters 1 2 and 3 of Ephesians he does a tremendous job of of laying out authentic identity which is divinity and then in chapters 4 5 and 6 he teaches us that when we take that identity and position that he taught us about in the first three chapters and connect that to grace that you have got an empowerment that will enable you to live the life you want which for me is a life in rest and peace i love rest and i love peace i love the i love the intimacy that it gives me with the father when i rest and have peace I lived so many days of my life with anxiety and sin consciousness and condemnation because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't measuring up to my standard, let alone the standard that I thought God had for me. And so there was, there's bad fruit that comes out of trying to perform chapters four, five, and six without chapters one, two, and three. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians the way that he did to highlight what God did through Christ as us for three chapters before he began to challenge us to live that message out. So we're gonna finish up today with a, with a passage that, man, I'll tell you, I, I did some serious spiritual work on this passage that we're gonna cover in just a few minutes. And I bet a lot of you that are watching on the Digital Cathedral back in the day, you did a lot of work, uh, a lot of religious activity on the same passage. And we'll look at that and then we'll talk about what Paul really meant when he got into that. So the life that Paul's designed for us to live, the life he's trying to get across, is that it's an effortless life, that it's a natural flow out of our spirit, that it's not um, an energized by flesh or soulish activity, but he's talking about building a life where we naturally have a flow that comes out of our spirit. And he has walked us in this book. This is, this is such a, a dynamic book. He has walked us through a lot of Truth today that is present truth, that, that the, the spirit of truth is unveiling for many of us. Paul walked the Ephesians to it. So when we get, by the time now that we're done with the book of Ephesians, we should know our identity is divinity. When he breathed into your nostrils the breath of life, it was eternal life. You've never been without eternal life from that very first breath. Every breath you take should remind you of the intimacy and the closeness that you have with the Father Every breath that you take is a repetition of the first breath that he blew into you, and without divine life, you wouldn't still be drawing that breath. So we learned identity. We knew, uh, we learned our position back in chapter one, that uh, he placed us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So I, I was never insecure. Only insecurity I had was that which I created for myself through all of my uh, training, years of education, years of continual reinforcement. Um, I wasn't eternally secure, I was totally eternally insecure. And some of you know what I'm talking about. He talks about our eternal destiny in uh, the first three chapters. He talks about the position we have as sons that we don't have to worry about that, that he pre-wired us, predestined us uh, according to his will to be sons. By the time you get into the, into the last three chapters, your consciousness should have been raised. 
he's teaching us to live that transcendent life. And so now it's, it's time to purposely walk out uh, what he has taught us throughout this entire book. And what, what I mean by walk it out is this. It's a simple demonstration of who you are. Right now, the, the, at, at this point in your journey, whoever it is you are, just walk it out. You don't have to put on a facade or a veneer, uh, try to put on an exterior of perfection. Let's face it, that's, you know, we would go to church and we'd ask people, how are you today? And they say, oh, I'm blessed, I'm so good, everything's wonderful. And inside their mess, they got problems at work, they're, they're, they're feeling defeated, they're depressed, but you're not gonna let another believer know that. Well, one of the powers of grace is this, it lets you be you. And if you've learned anything through these six chapters of Galatians coming, I mean, of Ephesians, even going back to when we came through Galatians, when he was weeding out the, the mixture message of law and grace so that he could bring in Ephesians and all the heavy duty teaching he taught in Ephesians, you should know that you are able to live just like you are, be transparent. And the more transparent you are, uh, the way you present yourself, the way you position yourself, posture yourself, uh, is a great draw to people to come to Christ, to get to know Christ in a better way. Christ shines through us in our weaknesses. And we might read about that in just a couple of moments. But it's wherever the, the pot has been cracked, you know, wherever he's had you on the wheel and has molded you and you've come off there and you've had some cracks because of the, the things that have happened in life, the circumstances, the adversities, all the junk we face, that's you know, maybe some cracks in your pot, some imperfections. That's where the life flows out. Those places you've had the real tests, the battles, the skirmishes, the, hard, the hardships, the, 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 the tough times. That's where the life of God shines out of you. So when you try to cover that up, put some Band-Aids on it or some Gorilla Glue to make it look like you don't have any cracks, that you're perfect, then he can't come th through that. So in Ephesians 6, he gives us a couple pieces of very practical advice. Um, and he shows us how this develops in our life. So let's start over at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. And we're going to go through this kind of systematically and kind of quickly. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. And the promise is long life. So the first, first dimension we want to be able to walk this message out is in family relationships. And he brings it down into the children obeying parents, having a right relationship with parents. And, you know, I think you could extrapolate that a little bit to say you should have a good relationship with all of your family. This message begins in demonstration. I remember Paul's teaching us, chapters 4, 5, and 6, how to manifest it, how to walk it out, how to make it visible. So he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 6 that it begins in family relationships. Your family can see it in you probably before anybody else can because they're around you more than anybody else. Then he goes on uh, in verse 2 and he explains that even a little bit farther. Let me read through verse 4. Verse, verse 2, he says, Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Verse 3, that it may be well with you and you may have a long life on earth. And you fathers, now he begins to interact this and, and intermingle the relationship. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So as I said, this is the first place we manifest the messages in family relationships. If we're going to, if we're going to impact our culture, if we're, going to, if we're going to make a difference in our world, if we're going to bring the kingdom into the earth through manifesting as, as sons and daughters of God, 
then the manifestation begins first within ourselves. First, we recognize it developing within us. Then it begins to spread out into our family, our parents, our children, our brothers, our sisters, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, and the, the circle just gets wider. Then in verses five to nine, he carries it outside the family and he brings it into the workplace. So let's read five through nine. He said, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. So he's saying, if you work for somebody, he said, do it as you would do it to the Lord. Walk it out in sincerity. Do it honestly, justly. Um, a good day's labor for a good day's wage. Uh, do it with fear and trembling. Uh, that's not where you're, you know, you're afraid like somebody's going to beat you or hit you. But it means to do it with reverence and respect. Be, be uh, serious about what you're doing if you're an employee. Then he goes, he, he explains it further. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, doing service as for the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone else does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or a free. Then he turns it back to the, to the owner of the business or the foreman or the one that's in charge. He said, and you masters, do the same things to them. So this is a two-way street. He's saying, if you're an employee, begin to show the kingdom to those that are in charge of you by your sincerity, uh, your seriousness in work, the, the quality of your work, I mean, honestly, folks, kingdom workers, we should, we should be the most diligent, productive people in the marketplace. We shouldn't be known for taking too long lunch hours or being slovenly in our actions or lazy or have to be prodded to get our job done. We should be the people that are leading uh, uh, our workplace in quality work. Then he says, masters, he said, do the same things to your employees or those you have charge of giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So Paul takes this message from the family to the workplace, whether you're uh, an employer or an employee. And when you do this, he gives the result in, in verse eight. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whether it's employee to employer, employer to employee, knowing that whatever good anyone does, Father to children, children to father, uh, brothers to sisters, to cousins, to nephews, knowing that whatever anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether it's bond or free. Sounds a lot like karma, doesn't it? Give good, get good. It's, it's actually a universal law. It's the law of sowing and reaping. You sow good, you reap good. You sow uh, corn, you're going to reap corn. You sow anger, hostility, and judgment that's what you're gonna receive back again. That's, what, that's the crop you're, you're gonna get. So this is how he begins to demonstrate it. Now verses 10 to 20, this is the section of scripture that I wanted to get to because this is a very familiar scripture and it can become extremely works-centered. I don't know how many of you at the Digital Cathedral plead guilty with me, but I'll tell you what, I used to put on, this passage is about the full armor of God I used to put on for a, a long time, a number of years, I used to put on the full armor of God most every day. And if I forgot to do it, when I got up in the morning, when my feet hit the ground, you know, you take a shower, you have coffee, you have breakfast. If I didn't put on my full armor, I didn't feel that I was dressed for the day. 
And I felt when I put in that full armor, you know, the helmet of salvation, my mind was protected in the breastplate of righteousness. I could walk rightly and, and, the, and, and the belt of truth holding me up, girding me in all things, putting on the, the, the gospel of peace, my shoes, and taking the sword of, of uh, the, the word of God and the shield of faith. I was ready to battle the devil. I was ready to take on every obstacle of the day. It was like the coach uh, in high school giving giving us, uh, before a football game, he would give us a pep talk so that, man, when we get so fired up that when he opened the door out of the locker room to go onto the field, we charged onto the field. We were ready to take on the opponent and win the game. And I felt the same way, putting on the full armor of God. What a, what a religious activity it was. Had no idea what it was really saying because I learned it from other people. I never really evaluated it or looked at it for myself. So let's look at this. This is, this is often the height of religious activity. How many of you out there at the Digital Cathedral used to put on the full armor of God and, and it was a work because it prepared you to fight. It prepared you to battle. It prepared you to meet the obstacles of the day. You, you'd be fiercely ready to get out there and get after it in Jesus' name, right? Well, let's read what it really says here. Verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So now we're going to learn that this whole passage from 10 down to 20 is about a demonstration of the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> this armor has nothing to do with me. The armor is all him, and we're going to discover that in just a minute. So when we're reading this, let's get this in right perspective. We're going to talk about the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. And he says in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil or the strategies of the devil. Now, how do, how do you stand against the wiles of the devil? In the power of his might, in the power of his strength, not your own strength. Amen. So again, how do we utilize the strength? How do we, in verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil or the plans, the strategies. Now, let's, just, let's just keep breaking this down. I'm gonna break this down for you so that you're free from putting on the full armor of God every morning if you've been doing that. All right, verse 11. Verse 12, let's, let's read on to verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, that's what I thought. I thought, you know what? We don't, we're not wrestling against people, but we're fighting the devil. Well, the fight isn't with, with, with people. Here's the truth of the matter. We represent the victorious Lord in mind games. This, this is what we battle. It's our own mind. Paul told Timothy that when, when you, uh, you can strive against yourself, you know, you're, you're shadow boxing, you're, 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 you're beating the wind, you're, you're conjuring up all this stuff that's coming in against you, the religious thought patterns, all the pa thought patterns that we developed in our mind. We, we empowered that which had no power and then battled it. And in my, in my past, I found that as long as I would fight this devil, however I imagined him to be, he would fight back. But the day that I woke up and said, you know what, this guy was a defeated foe. Why am I messing with this defeated foe? 
and I, I start dismantling this in my mind, my days of warfare were done. Uh, he's not talking about he's not talking about this devil that is going to appear. He's talking about uh, mind games, religious thought patterns. He's talking about a culture. The culture that we live live in tries to condition us, tries to pull us to behave like they do. Our culture tries to to groom us uh, to be one of them, and that's not who we are. I mean, Paul encountered this. Hold your place in Ephesians six, and come back to Second uh, Corinthians chapter. 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let, let's look at this, what Paul ran into. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, he said, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, what was this messenger of Satan that buffeted Paul everywhere that he went because of the revelations that he had. Do you know, do you know what that, that thorn was? It was the Judaizers that we studied back in Galatians that followed Paul around everywhere he went and tried to discredit the revelation that he was bringing to the Gentiles. The Judaizers would follow up behind Paul and say, and tell the church, you know, Paul's a good man, Paul's got part of the truth, but unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. So Paul would come in, get them all free, get them fired up for Christ, and then the Judaizers would come in behind them and discourage them, pollute their thinking, drag them into legalism, and it drove Paul crazy. It drove Paul crazy. So he says in verse eight, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would depart from me, that I wouldn't have to put up with it. And he said, and Paul, Paul did this three times. He battled, as long as he kept battling, notice this, as long as he kept battling, that force remained against him. Three times. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, where you're weak, there's a crack there that you think you're not sufficient, that you're not getting the job done. He said, that's the very crack that my power is coming through and letting people see the contrast between law and grace, the Judaizers mixing the message in you. People are able to see your strength come through that crack. Paul said, therefore, most gladly would I boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. Now notice Paul said he would glory in his weaknesses. It was his own weakness that was allowing this thorn in the flesh, these Judaizers to get under his skin, harass him, battle him, fight him, discourage him. It was in Paul's mind this battle was going on. And three times Jesus said, I'm sure all three times he said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't worry about it. I'll handle it. I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll, I'll handle it. And those are my people. I know how to get through to them. Therefore, Paul said, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches. See, he, all these things now he's, he's bringing back into a personal uh, element. He's not, he's not crediting this uh, uh, pitchfork carrying, long-tailed, red-suited devil. He's not, he's not crediting him with anything. Paul finally realizes, I've made this thing, I've made this battle within myself. I've created it. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches. When people rebuked him, reproached him. Listen, there's a great lesson in there for us. When, pe when our people we've known for years uh, uh, give us an affront over our freedom, just you love them. You go on. You don't let it get under your skin. You don't fight it. You don't battle it. He said, because for this reason, he said, when I am strong, 
When I am weak, he said, then I'm strong. And that's the lesson for all of us. So let's, let's go back now to this verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to understand that when he's, when he's talking about Ephesians 6 and verse 12, when he's talking about these powers, rulers of darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, he's talking about those things that fill the air, that are accusations, that are adversarial, things we conjure up in our mind, things that people bring against us. That's what we wrestle against. So verse 13, he, he goes on in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, and he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Take up the armor of God. This isn't your armor. It's his armor. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What's the evil day? The evil day is when the Judaizers come after you. The evil day is when you're facing something that you can't handle. The evil day is when things mount up so much and are messing with your head that you think you're gonna explode. That's the evil day. But the way we neutralize that, the way we kryptonite it, is with the full armor of God. Now let's notice about this full armor of God. Verse 14, let me finish off 13. Take therefore the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all the stand, end of verse 13, start of verse 14, stand therefore, put on the armor. The armor will enable you to stand. You don't stand in your strength. You don't stand in your perseverance. You stand with the armor on. Now watch, watch the armor, if you will. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Who is truth? Jesus said he is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and life. So what we're really putting on, uh, we're girding ourselves up. You know, we're protecting these essentials with truth. So we, that's our covering there. And you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Who is your righteousness? Are you your righteousness? Do you create your righteousness by your powerful stand yourself? No, he's your righteousness. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of him, righteousness of Christ in, in him, right? So we did a switch. We gave him our sin. He gave us our, his righteousness. So what's covering our, our, our chest is his breastplate of righteousness. And it says above, uh, uh, and he says, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Who is the Prince of Peace? It's Jesus. Do you see a pattern here? The helmet of salvation, he is your salvation. The, the, the belt of truth, he is the truth. Breastplate of righteousness, he is your righteousness. Then he says, take the shield of faith. Well, whose faith are we talking about here? If you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, you'll find that we stand in the faith of Christ, not faith in Christ. Wrong preposition, it's E-N, it means of Christ. The, the King James has it right. One of the times it really nailed it. The New King James puts in Christ, and some of the translations have in Christ and of Christ, faith of Christ, faith in Christ. But if there's a huge difference between having the faith of Christ, that's his faith, or me having my faith in him. I'll take, I'll take his faith any day. How about you? I'll take his faith. So we have our, our, our we're girded our, with the, around the waist with truth. We've uh, the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with peace. It's all him. Above all, take the shield of faith. It's his faith. Wherever you shall quench all the fiery darts of the, of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation. He is, he is uh, our salvation. 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's not talking about the Bible there. When he says you take and you battle with the Word of God, you just you, the only offensive weapon we have is the Word of God. That's the word that he quickens to you. Now, it might come out of the Bible. It might come out of a book. It might come out of what he deposits in you individually. But that's the thing that you, you let create an imagination of victory. When he gives you a word, he plants a word within you, that's what you use to be victorious of. All right? So let, let me finish this off. Verse 18. Verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit. And we pray in the Spirit because that's how we pray the perfect will of God being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. All right? So then in verses uh, 19 to 24, Paul just ends this chapter and he signals, he signs it off with his, with his signature ending when he says, grace be with you. And he says, amen. So the impact of Paul's writing that we've come through in these six chapters was to create in these Gentiles. Now remember the Gentiles, they did not have a religious background. They didn't have a spiritual foundation. They, they were not brought through the old covenant like the Jews. The old covenant was never for the Gentiles. It was never for you. Anything it says in the old covenant was for the nation of Israel. So Paul has these Gentiles and he begins to give them the gospel as it was revealed to him personally by Jesus. And he begins to inform them. Uh, they had no background. They had no knowledge. They had no understanding. So he begins to show them their right identity, their right position, all the things that he lays out in the first three chapters that they were always in Christ, the whole nine yards. And a little later, and we'll get to this when we get to the book of, the, of Colossians, but he, he shows them the wrong, the wrong uh, identification how you get the wrong identification. In Colossians chapter three, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter two, verse eight. I'll get to three, chapter three in just a minute. But in Colossians chapter two, verse eight, he, he says, this is how you build, a, this is not your identity. This is how you build a wrong identity. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit to the traditions of men. Well, that's what the Judaizers brought. That's what religion brings. Religion hinges on tradition, uh, uh, and philosophy. You know, the philosophy of the Baptist church is different than the philosophy or the theology of the Presbyterian church, which is different than the, the, the philosophy or the, of the theology of the charismatic church. He said, don't let anybody cheat you out of what I have taught you in this book by their belief system or their theology or their traditions. He says, according to the basic principles of the world, and man, when you look, when I look at what I used to believe, it matched so much from the world in its mindset and its perception and its philosophy. It's amazing. It's amazing. He says it, it's according to the world and not according to Christ. So he said that builds the total wrong ID. Now here's how you get the right identity. The, the wrong identity comes through traditions, through uh, faulty theologies and belief systems that look like the world. He said, but here's how you get the right one. He switches it to Jesus and says, for in Jesus, verse nine, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now what he does in verse 10 is just kind of take those first three chapters of Ephesians and just brings them into one verse and just says, here's the cliff note version of everything I've taught you. 
Verse 9 again, for in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So he says, if you really want the right identity, then just know that in this one Jesus, the Christ, we see the full manifestation of the fullness of the Godhead. The entire Godhead is in this one man. He's 100% man, 100% God. And you, who are 100% human, are now made 100% deity because you are complete in this one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So if you ever doubt your identity, if you ever doubt what he said in the first three chapters, he just kind of brings it, I love it, he brings it down into one verse. The Christ within reveals himself to you as you. Are you with me? The Christ that is in you reveals himself to you as you. Now let me say, let me clear up a couple of misconceptions. He absorbs you into himself. You retain individuality. You, you and I are, are, are of the same spirit. We're, we're sons and daughters of God. We have the same, same spirit. Yet we retain our individuality. We retain individuality with the Christ. Yet we are one in essence. I am one in essence with the Christ, just as you are one in essence with the Christ, and you are one in essence with me, and I'm one in essence with you. So when I sit here at the Digital Cathedral and I'm teaching you, you're also doing the teaching. You, you have ramped it up and you are working as me, with me, even though you're there, I'm here, we're of the same essence. So everything that I'm doing that God looks on and says, I like that, it's a good message. He's looking at you and saying, that, you're part of that. You're, you're in that fully with that guy over there in Houston, Texas named Keithley. You and he are walking this out together and you're carrying a message around the world that's bringing liberty and freedom just as much as I am. We're doing this together. So when you support it, you're actually supporting yourself in the carrying out of your God-ordained mission. Amen? Everything in chapters 4, 5, and 6, especially that 6th chapter, verses 10 to 17, oh my goodness, how we can religiously work that one, are lived out by revelation of knowing the power and the strength that's in the armor, that's his power, his strength, and not yours. Let me say it this way. Jesus is totally the Father's mind made up about you. Everything he thinks about Jesus, he thinks about you. Jesus is the federal head of humanity. In him, in Jesus, the entirety of humanity dwells. Some know it, some don't know it. But it doesn't affect the fact that in him, the, the whole of humanity, all. He is above all, through all, and in all. Now, Jesus is how the Father sees you. But let me, let me, let me clear up a misconception, because I used to believe this. This is the way I thought it. When, Jesus see, when the Father sees us, he does not see us through the lens of Jesus. That kind of that lends us to the idea of, well, God really can't stand to look at you, but because of Jesus, he'll look through Jesus, and he doesn't lose his cookies when he looks at you because he's looking through Jesus, so he doesn't get sick to his stomach. That, that's, not, that's not how it is. You stand fully on, the, on, on your righteousness that is in Christ. You stand fully with Christ, as Christ, him as you. You stand fully in, in, in your uh, sonship. You stand fully in your rewiring uh, to be as he is in this world. Uh, it, Paul says it well in Colossians chapter 3. I almost read it too early. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. 
Listen to this. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died, man, you're off the scene. However, your life, you're still living. You're a dead man, but you're living. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now watch this, verse four. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Now verse four, when Christ, listen, when Christ who is our life appears, when he's revealed, doesn't mean when he comes back, you know, sets his foot down on the, on the temple or whatever you think he's supposed to do, whatever they taught you back in your religious days. When he's revealed, when you see him, when, when Christ who is your life appears, when you see him better, when you see him more clearly, when you see him more clearly, you're seeing yourself more clearly, right? You're understanding more who you are. And eventually you're gonna know you like he knows you. That's the goal, that's the intention. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will appear with him also in the same glory. So Paul, Paul writes to create a change of mind in, in the Ephesians. We could call it a repentance. He lays it on chapters one to three, who they are. Then in four, five, six, he says, now because of who you are, you've changed your mind about who you are. Now you can live it, you can manifest it, just be you. No, no fake, no fa facade, no veneer. Just be who you are at this present time. So you begin to make changes and in, in, in your paradigm moves. And depending on how deep you were in religion is how uh, fast that you'll probably be able to come out of this. So whether it's the Galatians, the Ephesians, or the Baptists and the Charismatics, whenever the Father begins to open up to a paradigm shift in your life, he always does a transforming of your mind. You begin to think differently. Now here's another reversal that I've done from my previous stint as 35 years as a pastor. <laughs> I used to think that your renewed mind would be renewed. I used to think your mind would get renewed and then your heart would follow your mind. Now I see I had it backwards. I used to, and that, what that leads to is a lot of, a lot of knowledge because you think if I could just get the right knowledge, everything would be fine. So I used to, used to teach, used to believe that if I could get my mind convinced, then my heart would, would follow my mind. Now, it came as a stark, glaring revelation that it was the opposite of that. Now, see how this checked out in your life. When I got the revelation of grace and the finished work of the cross and unconditional love that the Father has for us, uh, when I begin to see that there's no eternal conscious torment, there's no hell, as I'd been taught it for years and years, uh, It happened first in my heart. I knew there was truth there, but my head says, man, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't go that way. My head fought me every step of the way. And when someone would come in and oppose what I was, was beginning to teach, I'd say, well, maybe they're right. Everybody can't be, be wrong and I'm right. So I, my mind was warring so much. Then my mind, uh, you know, and my thinking shifted because my heart was, was bringing a convincing evidence that my, heart, that my mind couldn't refute. So my mind shifted and when it did, I found that it renewed itself to what the heart was saying. And once my mind began to renew, it renewed then to the mind of Christ that I had and that mind of Christ then began to plant Christocentric or mind of Christ seeds into my spirit. Now that's a lot smoother transition. 
The heart has a way of drawing the mind into truth. Now, if you start with the head, the head will always battle with logic and tradition. The head will always battle when you hear something. And even, even in your spirit, you say, man, I like that. It really sounds good. Your head will battle you. A heart will melt. Let me put it this way. A heart melted in love can get the mind to shift. When your heart just begins to break down, man, you see how good God is. You see all that he's prepared for us, all he's deposited into us without our even acknowledging it or accepting it or receiving it. He's just like direct deposited into me. Then your head begins, your head begins to change. The more, the, the more you live truth out, the more truth you see with the eyes of your heart, which results in this continual shift of our mental paradigms. My mind is always changing now because of what my heart is seeing. I now live by the revelation that comes from the spirit to my spirit rather than what I can intellectually perceive. Are you following? I hope I'm not losing you. Now check this out. In the beginning, it's a, it's a very laborious process for the heart to change the mind until you get the mind of Christ. When you get the mind of Christ in an area, I got the mind of Christ in grace, and then I got it in the fatherhood of God, and then I got it in unconditional love, and then I got it in mercy that endures forever. Once I got the mind of Christ on that, and I begin to see it like Christ saw it, all of a sudden, uh, uh, then my head would, would shift and my heart would, you know, would explode with joy, and pretty soon, my head, now this is, this is really what it gets powerful, pretty soon my head began to trust my heart. So then I, I, when I would see revelation in my heart, my head would agree very quickly because it, my heart now had a good track record of being right, which is really the way it's supposed to work. In fact, Paul said, I don't have time to read it, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 24, it, it says that it's God's will that we be sanctified holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and it puts it in this sequence, spirit, soul, and body. I think, that, I think that's the right alignment of, of the human. The spirit has dominant position, and then the mind, and then the body. But the way you, our culture, the way we were raised and educated, our mind had the, 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 the premier position, and the spirit was, might be second or third, probably third, because you know, your, your head and your body had a way of agreeing. What your body felt, your head would agree with, and you know, your head would feel like your body feels some way, and then your body would pick up on what the head is telling you. You, you, you know the routine. But when we, we move this thing around, you start living by what comes out of your spirit. It, it, in time, and I'm saying this to encourage you, Digital Cathedral, in time, your head will begin to agree with your heart very quickly. At first, it, it fights it, and it doesn't want to do that. The, the best, the easiest, the fastest way to create a shift in thinking is to see the truth in your heart and your spirit and let your spirit go to work on your head. Put your head in neutral gear and let the spirit of truth work through your spirit to convince your mind. Now, I'm at a place now where my mind yields real quick. My mind can recognize, okay, that, that spirit's picked up on something and I get the mind of Christ in that area. Now here's the powerful part. Once you have the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ can begin to deposit Christocentric seeds into your spirit and your spirit or your subconscious or the ground begins to produce what this Christocentric mind is planting. All right, I'm gonna begin to land this baby. 
Let me say this, because of the work that the Spirit of God is doing in your life, there's a verse of scripture that's gonna be very important to you over the next couple of years. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, supposedly, the, the wisest, said in Proverbs chapter 23, verse seven. Now this is, this is gonna be a verse you're gonna hear hundreds of times over the next couple of years. You heard it here first, but you're gonna hear this a lot because this is what God is doing. Pro, Proverbs 23, seven says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you don't like the way your life is going, change your heart. Change what your heart thinks. Change what your heart sees. Change what you are planting into your heart, the seeds that you're imagining. Change it. Your belief system is and will always continue to go through major changes. Just mark it down. Your theology is going to shift. Your beliefs are going to change. Uh, you're going to be continually see things different in your heart, and that's going to create this rewiring of your brain. We're going to, we're going to think more Christocentric. We're going to think more Christ-centered all of the time. You will, you will know that the heart-to-mind transformation is going on, and here's the key. You're going to know that this, this heart-to-mind transformation is going on. Check it out. Listen, I, I, I lived this for about two or three years. You'll know that your heart is trying to transform your mind when you know truth, but you can't explain it. <laughs> when I first got grace, I knew it. I, I loved it. I was eating it up. I was lapping it up. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I could not articulate it proficiently. I would go over to the church with a, with a, a teaching on grace Sunday morning, and I, I think I befuddled people. It probably created myself more problems than if I would have just let the message settle into me before I tried to share it with other people, right? The spirit will crockpot things. The mind wants to microwave it. The mind says, I got it. Talk it, talk it, say it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth should speak. You're, you're gonna know that your heart is, trans, is transforming your mind. There's some things right now that I know is truth, but I've, I've learned from experience. I've, I'm, wise, I'm wiser now in some areas. There's some things I know right now are truth, and I'm not teaching it because I can't articulate it. I can't explain it. I can't get it across. And do you know why? Because that revelation, that word that God has given me has not become me. That word has not become my flesh yet. When that word becomes my flesh, I'll be able to share it. So the renewal of the mind is necessary so that it can come under direction of the inner man of the spirit. The, the subconscious needs to come under the direction of the consciousness. The heart needs to come under the direction of the soul. The spirit needs to come under, uh, 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 needs to, to be able to rise up and to take its prominent position in, in the chain of our lives, all right? So this is gonna happen, it's gonna continually happen. So this has to happen so that your actions follow your spirit without soulish hindrances. Your, your spirit has got to convince your mind. Listen to me. Don't, you might have to go back and listen to this a couple times. Your actions have got to follow your, your, your spirit without soulish hindrances. Therefore, it's going to take a little while. It's going to take some time for this to develop in your life. But until it happens... Until it happens, you're not going to have peace or walk in confidence and boldness. But once it, once it sticks, once your, your heart gets your mind renewed, it's called renewing the spirit of your mind. Once that happens, 
You're bold, man. You're confident because you got it. It's you. It is now you. There's nobody that can de defeat me talking about grace or the finished work or my identity as divinity because it's, I know it. I got it. I, it it's, it's firm. It's, but there was a day if I would have started uttering it, somebody could have talked me out of it because it wasn't firmly planted. I had not renewed my mind to it. My spirit knew, my heart knew, my subconscious knew, but my heart, my head was tailing along. So the challenge is to let go all of the perceptions that you've had and embrace his quickly. Embrace what your heart, what your spirit is saying quickly. The, the higher in consciousness you go, the, the, the more finely tuned your spirit becomes, the more you're gonna see him pulling those false perceptions off, plucking them out one by one. And some of the false perceptions we have, we won't even recognize till he shines a light on it. But once he flips the switch and shines the light, you're gonna see the faulty perceptions and you're gonna go, aha, you'll have one of those aha moments. You'll say, aha, and you'll let it go. I hope you followed Paul through Ephesians. I gotta, I gotta end, you know, I'm a little on overtime this morning. I hope you followed Paul through Ephesians and I hope you saw the separation of the, of the two parts, one to three, four to six. And I hope he challenged you in those first three chapters to begin to walk it out, to manifest it, to put on full display to your ability, to where you're at right now without faking it. We don't fake it till we make it. I hope he, hope he challenged you to begin to display it at whatever level you can, your family, your workplace, the culture, however it is. Those same shifts, those renewals, those transformations that Paul talked about to the Ephesians are the exact same that we're, we're encountering today. I wanna to sign off this morning with Paul's ending to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter six and verse 24, Paul ends it all up by saying this, and this is what I say to you on the digital cathedral. Peace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. See you Wednesday night on Wednesday Night Live. And I just pray, Father, that you would entrench every digital cathedral believer and attender in the solid truth of what your spirit is revealing to us. Father, it's not by might or power, it's by your spirit that we attain this place that Paul talks about. Bless every member of this house, we pray in Jesus' name. I love you guys. Thank you for being with me and thank you for your support in Jesus' name. God bless.